Father in heaven, we give you thanks uh, for everything that you gave us, not just this week, but in our lives. Father, we thank you for uh, our families. We thank you for the fellowship that we have as uh, people in Christ. And as we come before you, Lord, to learn from your word, we pray that uh, your spirit would work in our hearts and in our minds, that wherever we think wrongly, you would, uh, you would correct us and transform us, and that you would teach us, Lord, what you want us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about church and community. Uh, the first week that I started this um, little series, I said that the goal is for us to learn what community looks like and what we're aiming for as a church. But before we get there to what community should be, uh, to what how to, to how we th or to think about community in a church, uh, we need to think about what the church is and build that foundation first. And as we said uh, then, uh, the foundation is covenant theology. So all of this kind of flows from the, the Sunday School series that uh, we wrapped up back in June. Covenant theology is the, the foundation that's the, the scaffolding. It holds all of Scripture together. We look at the, the Word through the lens of covenant theology um, as opposed to other views like dispensationalism. Um, and we talked a lot about the Mosaic Covenant. We spent 4,000 years on it. Um, we spent a little bit of time, not quite as much, but still a lot on the New Covenant. And so one of the things that uh, I've been unpacking a little bit in this series is the fact that the New Covenant is the, that's the founding document. It's the constitution of the church, um, that the church is governed by the New Covenant. So when we come to Scripture, right, we read Scripture through the lens of the New Covenant, which means... Uh, Every, every part of scripture, we're reading it through the lens of the cross. Everything that Jesus accomplished, everything he did on the cross, uh, how that affects us, all these things are, are, are how we understand the Old Testament. Right? We look at the Old Testament and we see Christ. We don't preach, uh, hey, you need to make sure that you do all the Mosaic law so that you can stay in the land. Instead, we look at it through the lens of Christ. That doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us. But we look through all of Scripture through the New Covenant because the New Covenant creates the church, governs the church. Uh, so we talked about a few things that this implies, right? The implications of the fact that the New Covenant is our, our constitution means that God creates the church. God has created the church. It's not something we've created. It's not something that we make. We're not here uh, because we all are like-minded individuals. It's not a book club. Um, God creates the church. We also talked about how the church then is permanent because the church endures as long as the covenant endures. Uh, the Sinai covenant, um, it stopped enduring, right? It lasted a long time, but it ceased. And so Israel is, as a people, they stopped, but God preserved a remnant and made a new covenant. And this covenant is one that will not be broken, as Jeremiah 31 says. And so the people that this covenant, the people in this covenant then will not stop. They will not stop existing. They will not perish. They won't go away. The church will always exist as long as the new covenant exists. And the new covenant will exist forever. Um, we also talked about how this means that the church is a reality and not an ideal, which means this isn't, the church is, as a concept is not something we're shooting for. It is. Right? We, the body of Christ exists, and God has created it. It's not something that is floating out there. It's real. You can touch it, and God created it, and we are part of it. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't grow. As we've talked about, um, the church still does grow and is sanctified. 
but it also means that the church exists and it exists for a purpose. That the new covenant shows us what our purpose as a church is. Um, and the main purpose is to make disciples. That Christ and the... Uh, and the Great Commission gave the, the mission to the church and said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them all the things that I have, uh, to, teaching them to obey all the commandments I've given you. In other words, the purpose of the church is to make disciples. And to make a disciple means to shape someone in the image of their instructor or of their master. So Paul says that a disciple, when he's fully formed, is like his master, and that we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. So we are, as disciples, being transformed, being conformed to the image of Jesus. That Our goal is to be more like him. That's discipleship, is to be more like our master. Uh, and this means that the tools that God has given the church, the main tools are the word, the, uh, the word and the sacraments. So baptizing and teaching God's word, these are the main tools, uh, the primary tools to fulfill uh, this purpose of shaping people to be more like Jesus. They're not the only tools, but they're the main ones. And then we started talking about the church and all the images in scripture of, of the church, how scripture describes the church. So we talked about uh, the church as a body. Um, what, is it, what do you guys remember about that image? What does it mean that the church is a body? What are some of the implications that we, that we talked about a, a couple weeks ago? Yeah, we are one, we are united, and yet we have distinct parts, distinct members, and each has different functions. What else? What does it mean the church is a body? Each part has a purpose. Each part has a purpose. Each part is there for a purpose. So how does that affect our relationship to other believers? Yeah, to love and respect each other, um, to, to see each other's, well, as Paul puts it, no part of the body can say to the other part, I don't need you, right? Because that's saying your function is not essential. <laughs> you're not an essential part of the body. You're, uh, you're optional, and I'm clearly essential. Um, so we can't do that. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't have need of you. So Paul says that there are so many different parts of the body that we are of one body, and yet we have distinct members who have different functions. They're there for a purpose, and we all need each other. Right? We can't be isolated from each other. We can't split the body up into distinct parts and groups and say, well, I'm going to hang out with the hands because I'm a hand and I like other hands. No, you need the whole body. Right? You need the whole body to be in your life. You need to be with all the other parts of the body. We can't say to any part, I don't need you. You're not, not important to me. Um, because if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer, right? If one part of the body is hurting and suffering and limping, that affects the whole body. Right? If, you, if the big toe is, is in pain, that affects how the body walks and operates. Um, so when we, when we look at the body of Christ and we look at each other, we're not distant. I'm going to hold you over here. I don't really need you. And I don't need to know about your life. I don't, need to, I don't need to know what's going on in your life. I don't need to know if you're hurting or suffering. 
um, because it affects you in ways that we're, we don't always see. Uh, and this means that one of the implications is that we need to be in each other's lives. We need to be a part of each other's lives. We need to be talking to each other, saying, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? This doesn't mean that we all need to be best friends, um, but that does mean that as a body, right, we are all one body, that we all should be praying for each other, being aware of what's going on in each other's lives, encouraging one another, helping one another. If one part of the body is suffering, we should all come together to help that body or that part. But this also means that if one part rejoices, that we all rejoice. That we don't look at someone else's, um, uh, what's the word? If, if, if one part of us is blessed or receives something from God or is, has some reason to rejoice, that we don't then all you're like, oh, cool for you. But in reality, we're mad that it's not us or we're jealous. Like, that's good for you, but this, this makes me feel bad. No, we all rejoice. When something good happens to one of us, it's as though all of us are, part, are, are taking part of that. Um, so we're not separate. Right? We're not against each other. We're not carving out our little, our little space in the church. Um, we are one church. We're an imperfect church. We talked about how the local church is an imperfect representative of the whole body of Christ. Um, but we're still part of the body. And then we talked about how the church is a building. So what kind of building is the church? What's the, what kind of, what's the function of the building in this image of the church as a building? Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. Yeah, there's a foundation. And the, well, actually, the foundation is the apostles, and he's the, the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. So what does it mean that Christ is the cornerstone? Measuring. Yeah. He's the, the cornerstone was the first stone placed in construction, and all the other stones are measured according to that cornerstone. So even the foundation, apostles, prophets, teachers, all of them are measured according to the cornerstone. So even though we're built on the apostles, we're built on prophets, it's all measured according to Christ. And so if, when you start adding other layers, right, you start adding preachers and, and teachers and elders and deacons, even them have to be measured according to the cornerstone, which is Christ. And this foundation starts to be built up, this building starts to be built up, and what does it look like? What kind of building is God building? Creating. A temple. Yeah. So Paul says... In Ephesians 2, that uh, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the temple, or the church, is a temple. It's a temple that God is building um, for himself. Right, so that he can dwell in it. Um, and when you look at the temple in the Old Testament, you look at the tabernacle and how the temple was built, how the tabernacle was built and decorated, that it was not done roughshod, it was not, you know, ugly. It was a beautiful, incredible building adorned with gold and all the precious materials in the world. There's pictures of pomegranates everywhere. The image is, this is what God wants, is a temple that looks like this. That's what he's doing to us. Right? As, as God built the tabernacle, so he is building you. And that means that he is 
adorning his temple. He is building us up. He's using the most precious materials that he can find, uh, which should be encouraging, right? That God considers you a worthwhile addition to his temple. He considers you someone that he wants in his church. He says, this makes my church more beautiful. Um, I hope that's encouraging because it's encouraging for me. Um, and then God builds this church, right, so that he can then fill it with his people and that he can fill it with his presence so that when we come to worship on Sunday, this is not a routine experience. This is not something that we just do for fun. God is here. Right? We come into the presence of God to worship him in his building, in his church. Right? It's not the physical building itself. It's when we come together as a church. So that even if we were at a house church, right, God would be there. Or if we were in the most grand cathedral in the world, God would be there. Um, and this means that when we come to worship God, we come into his presence, and this is the closest we'll get to heaven on this side of Christ's return. That the worship service, the body of Christ, the building, the temple, this is, the, this is our, our, what's the word, our touching point to heaven. Um, and it, it doesn't always look how you expect it to look because we're still imperfect. We're still being sanctified. But this is where we come most closely to God's presence in worship. Uh, so those are, those are a couple of the images of the church that we've already talked about in Scripture. Uh, there's, there's a lot of other ways that the Scriptures talk about the church. Uh, there's other images. Sometimes the church is described as a family. Paul in Ephesians 2 said that you are part of the household of God. We call each other brothers and sisters. God is our father. The, the image of a, of a family, the church is a family, is all over the place. Um, often is described as a kingdom. and building up into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Um, that the church is, I think Paul says in Ephesians 2, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens right, with saints and members of the household of God. So we're citizens of a kingdom, we're, we're members of a family, we're parts of a body, we're stones in a building. Um, these are all, or, and there's also, you know, we're branches connected to a vine. It's another image in scripture of the church. God is, God uses so many vivid ways to talk about the church. Um, today I thought it would be good to touch on another image, which is the church as bride. So today we're going to talk about the church as bride, church as bride of Christ. Um, can you guys think of any places in Scripture that point to the relationship between Christ and the church being a marriage? Where you see this image of the Christ as, as the church as a bride and, and Christ as, as the bridegroom. Um, doesn't have to be the New Testament either. Where does, where does Scripture talk about this relationship? Matthew? God, God having married the Israel, mm -hmm. and Israel being not faithful to God. Yeah, yeah, Ezekiel talks about church as a bride and how they weren't faithful to God. Hosea say does the same thing. And Jeremiah does the same thing too. We'll talk we'll talk about Jeremiah in just a little bit. What else? What other ways, what other parts of scripture, where else in scripture does it it point to the relationship between Christ and the church as a marriage? Revelation, yeah. Do you do you have a specific passage in mind? That's no, okay. Um, but yeah, you're right. Revelation, uh, specifically Revelation 19, talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
how the, the church is the bride adorned with fine linens and beautiful and arrayed in attire and brought to the bridegroom and then there's a big feast, right? That's the, the image of Christ returning is this is the, this is the moment, right? This is the, the special day where the bride and the bridegroom get united. Any others? So you said Ephesians. Ephesians 5, yeah. Sergey, was that what you were saying? Yeah, Ephesians 5. Um, turn to Ephesians 5. So in Ephesians 5, 22 and following, um, these are, you know, this is a very um, well-known passage. It talks about husbands and wives. Uh, we turn to it to, to talk about marriages and, and our relationship as husbands and wives. Uh, but Paul's doing, Paul's weaving something else in here at the same time. So Ephesians 5, and following, he says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, um, there's a lot in this passage that we could talk about, but let's, let's keep it to Christ and the church. How do husbands, how do they represent Christ? How do they point uh, to the relationship between Christ and the church? Let me look at this passage. Husbands should be self-sacrificial. Yeah, husbands should be self-sacrificial. Yeah, Why? Why should husbands be self-sacrificial? Yeah. Yeah, because that's what Jesus did. Right? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Yeah. Yeah, Paul is not saying wives have the hard part, you have to submit, and husbands get the easy part. Um, no, this is, it is hard to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That is a lofty ideal. It means perfectly. And obviously, we all fail as husbands and as wives. But how else? So what about the marriage relationship and the husband's role in a marriage relationship? How does that point to Christ and the church? Husband's the head. Husband's the head. Yeah, husband is the head. So what does that mean? And specifically, as it points to Christ. Yeah, yeah. That means that the husband's a leader, as Christ is a leader. That the husband, his job is to represent Christ, right? To to point his family to Christ, to lead in such a way that reflects on Christ. 
which means that when a husband is doing a bad job, this reflects on Christ. He is reflecting poorly on Christ. He is, he's being a bad, a bad image, a broken mirror. Um, because the, the perfect relationship that we're looking to is Christ and how he loves his people, his church. Um, so also think about how, how Christ initiated, right? how Christ initiated the relationship between himself and his church. He's the one who pursued the church. He pursued Israel. He pursued the church. He's the one who lays down his life for his church out of love. Right? Not out of, um, not just because he has to, but out of love. Um, he's the one who, who initiates and pursues. He's the one who binds himself in covenant to his church. Uh, like this covenantal commitment is, is, is deeply, <laughs> like when we think of marriage as a covenant, we're saying this is Christ and the church. It's a covenantal relationship. Um, and this means that when husbands are unfaithful, it is, it is doubly doubly destructive because it, it destroys the covenant and it reflects upon Christ and his covenant with the church. And that's not who Christ is. He doesn't go back on his promises. He's not unfaithful ever. Um, and it also means that, well, what, what else? What else does it mean? How else does a husband point to, to Christ and the church? What else does a husband do? He loves, he's self-sacrificial, but what else? Okay, provision and protecting. But what's the purpose of those things? Uh huh. But there, there are ways you could do that that are wrong, right? I could, I could keep Masha safe by locking her in the basement. Why is that not right? Okay. <laughs> yes, but she's safe, right? I'm doing my job as a husband. So look at the passage. What, is, what else does Paul say? Yeah. And then it talks about cleansing her with the word, washing, washing of water with the word. Yeah. Instead of hard for a purpose, not just mustering. Right. Not for his purposes, yeah. but for a high calling. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is something that we don't talk about a lot, but I think is also how, how, the marriage relationship is beautifully points to Christ. Is that the husband's job is not just to provide and protect, but there's a purpose to that. There's a there's a movement towards something. There's a goal in mind, and it's to present his wife as holy and blameless, um, without blemish, to Jesus. Right? His goal is to leave his wife better than how he found her. Um, or as Paul says a couple verses later, um, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Right? The provision and protection is not a bare bones, oh, I'm lucky in the basement, I mean, you're safe. It's my goal is to nourish and cherish, to make her more beautiful, to, to point her to Christ so that she is more holy, more like Jesus, so that I can present her to Christ at the last day and say, this, here's my wife, she's, she's yours. God, thank you for <laughs> the opportunity to love her. And Lord willing, you know, she will be more beautiful than when I married her. And... That may be because of things I did, um, and it may be because of things I didn't do, and it may be because uh, I failed, that she's more beautiful. Because ultimately, right, this is about Christ and the church, that he's the one uh, who is doing this work to sanctify Masha, to sanctify me, to sanctify each other, um, that even on our failures, God is using that to make us more holy.
Uh, so this relationship, this marital relationship between husband and wife is not a distant, it's not a cold, impersonal, I'll take care of you, um, but I'm not really going to be close to you. Like that's not what Christ or Paul is, is pointing to. It's this close, intimate, joyful relationship where Jesus takes delight in his church. He delights in her. He, he showers her with gifts. He, he, he wants to make her more beautiful. He wants her to grow and to be nourished and cherished. Um, the, the husband points to this. Right? But this is really saying, this is what Christ does. This is what Jesus does for his church. That even now, today, Christ is doing this to his church, blessing her, loving on her, showering her with gifts, you know, making her more holy, nourishing and cherishing her. G, did you have your hand up? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Matthew Anderson's part of the yeah, Matthew Anderson's uh, Sunday school on family worship, I think, was really, really good and appropriate. And I think the the unique calling of husbands is this is your responsibility to to point your family to Christ, to fill them with God's word. Uh, absolutely. Any other thoughts on husbands? Now they point to Christ in the church. Okay, so how do wives point to Christ in the church? We just talked about husbands. How do wives point Christ to the church? Okay, godly submission. But isn't submission a bad thing? Nope. Why not? We're to be submissive to God and His truth, so yeah, no, it's not bad. It's great. Yeah, it is great. I agree. Um, it's maturing. Yeah. Yeah, it does take a lot of, it is hard to do. Um, how does that point uniquely to Christ and the church? How, does, how do wives, not just in submission, Paul says other things. How do wives, how do them, how, how does, what is Paul saying about wives? Are you saying he's giving wives instruction how to, what their role is in the marriage? How does this point to Christ in the church? He ties the two things together. Husbands represent Christ and wives represent the church, but in what ways? How do they point to this relationship? Yeah, to submit to him. So what does that mean? That Christ is to, or the church is to submit to Christ. To be obedient to him. Yeah, to listen to him and do what he says. What else? Be faithful. Yeah. Yeah, to be loyal to him, to Christ. This is why idolatry is so deeply linked to adultery and why God uses the image of a marriage when he's talking about Israel's idolatries. That when they commit idolatry, they're committing spiritual adultery. So we'll read, we'll, we'll talk about this in, a, in just a minute. 
but they're deeply linked, especially in the prophets. Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. For they watch out for your souls. Yeah. As those who got gifts. Yeah. So this points to the fact that we as individuals, that's a great passage. Uh, Gary pulled out Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Um, you know, we think about the church as a whole submitting to Christ, but this also applies to every individual believer submitting to Christ and to Christ's representatives, right? And to his church and to the, to the leaders of his church, um, specifically elders, right? So elders are, are, are the, the main representatives of Christ's authority that we submit to our leaders, to our elders. Um, they are the ones who are keeping watch over souls. They are the ones doing the husband work, Right, for the church, They're the one nourishing and cherishing the church, shepherding, right, this, this nurturing image. Um, and so we are called by Christ to submit to him as individuals, and this means to submit to his church, and it means to submit to his word. So there's a big debate, I think, in, in evangelical circles. Like, is Christ Savior or is he also Lord? And what does that mean? Right? How do we talk about Christ as Savior and then Christ as Lord? And the reality is that Christ is our Savior, but He's also our Lord, which means that His influence, His authority, doesn't just apply to Sunday morning. His authority applies to our entire life. Like as a husband, as, we, as a wife submits to her husband, not just on Sunday morning, but every single day, consistently, that as a church, that's what we're to do with Christ. It's pointing to the fact that as people, as believers, we submit to Christ, to His authority, to His Word, every single day. Um, that there is no part of our lives that's outside of, of His influence. All right? We're not saying, oh, well, I'll submit to you mostly, but I'm going to carve out a little, me, a little me time, a little me zone. This is mine. As a wife is to, not to hold anything back from her husband, we are not to hold anything back from Christ. Because it's pointing to that. And as a wife loves her husband, submits to him, respects him, obeys him, this is, this is reflecting upon Christ and the church. So in the same way that a, a poor husband reflects poorly upon Christ, a poor wife reflects poorly on the church and on their relationship. And this means that from both sides, husband and wife, in a marital relationship, we, we a husband leads and a wife submits, uh, self-sacrificially and in love and respect, even if your other spouse, the, you know, your spouse is not playing their part. That it doesn't depend upon how good they are as a wife or as a husband. That we're called to do these things because it's about Christ. That the reason is not, well, my husband is a great guy, so I'll respect him and I'll submit to him. Or my wife is really beautiful, so I'm going to love her and, and cherish her. Even if your wife is ugly, and I don't mean physically ugly, I'm sorry. Uh, has a little bit, I stuck my foot in my mouth, I'm sorry. What I mean is that even in her worst moments, a husband is to love his wife, and even in a, a husband's worst moments, the wife is to submit to him because it's about Christ and the church. That's what it's pointing to. You know, it's interesting in Scripture, it tells the husband to love the wife, it never tells the woman to love the husband, it tells older women to train the younger women. The thing of that is, 
if a man loves his wife as Christ loves the church, women respond to that love and care. Yeah, it certainly makes, makes each other's job easier when we're pursuing Christ and pursuing what God says and we're being faithful. Um, absolutely. So, we have a few minutes. Um, there's, there's a bunch of stuff that we could still say. Um, I think we'll, we'll touch on um, one, one, quick, one quick thing in Jeremiah. So, in Jeremiah, um, it, Jeremiah starts off with God saying to, to his people uh, that Israel has, he has given Israel a certificate of divorce. Um, and Jeremiah is, is prophesying in a time where the kingdoms have been split. So there's the northern kingdom Israel and there's the southern kingdom Judah. And Jeremiah is prophesying in time when Israel has been, he's already, God has already written the certificate of divorce for the northern kingdom, but Judah has not yet been exiled. So Judah is not yet there. However, God says in Jeremiah 3 that Judah has only pretended to return. That He's, he's saying, you, you, you saw what happened to your sister. You saw what happened to the northern kingdom, how I divorced her. And yet you're, you're only coming back to me in word, but not in heart. Because Judah was still committing idolatry. Israel was divorced because of her idolatry. Because of her spiritual adultery. How she was following after false gods, which was to, to be unfaithful to her husband, God. So God divorced Israel. And Judah is doing the same thing. And so they have defiled themselves. And God says in Jeremiah 3, um, he says that if a husband divorces his wife because of unfaithfulness, he can't take her back. He can't take her back as a wife because she has already been defiled. She's already been divorced and gone and done her defilings. And so if he were to take her back, that would pollute the land, God says in Jeremiah. So he can't now reinstitute that marriage. It's dead in the water and it can't come back. So how then could God, after divorcing Israel, after divorcing his people, how then could he have a relationship with his people again? How then could there be a covenantal union again? Because he says there can't be a covenantal union because you've been defiled and you've committed spiritual adultery. So the only way God could take Israel back and make a covenantal union with his people again is if, he, if, is if they were a virgin. Is it it'd have to be like it never happened, that they were, their purity and their virginity was restored. And so in Jeremiah 31, God says to Israel, again I will build you and you will be built, O virgin Israel. So the, what God is saying is that you have committed adulteries, defiled yourself, and I have divorced you. But I will make you a virgin again so that I can marry you again so that I can restore the covenantal union. And so this is what happens when God regenerates us, is he makes us new. He restores us. He makes us new again so that he can marry us. And so the Christ and the church, this relationship is where Christ purifies his church so that he can marry her. Because she's already been defiled. Like the moment we're born, we're defiled with idolatry and, and, and sinful habits that we are full of sin and stains and filthy. And Christ washes us, makes us pure so that he can unite us to him. So that there can be a marriage, a covenantal union. 
and it can be pure and holy and good, all because Jesus died on the cross for his church. So this, this image of Christ in the church is... It's a rich one. It's, it's throughout all the prophets. It's throughout Scripture. And it ends in Revelation with the final, this, this glorious final uh, uniting of Christ and the church in a wedding supper where the bride is adorned in all of her rich garments and Christ has given her all these jewels and, and made her beautiful so that she, he can bring her to himself and they can get married forever and enjoy a big supper, right? A big feast. Um, this is where we're going. As, as a church, as a body of Christ, as his bride, this is where we're heading. This is where we're going. To be united to our Lord, to be united to our husband, Jesus Christ. Um, and this means that, like any marriage, if there's no physical presence, it's, 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 something's lacking, right? Something's missing. That our, our desire should be to be physically present with Jesus. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Right? Jesus is going to return physically and we'll be in his presence physically uh, for eternity. So that is, that's where we're going. Um, are there any questions or comments? Any last ideas or confusions or anything you want to? No? Okay. Well, let's pray and ask God to prepare us to come into his presence to worship. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for uh, how you have loved us, how you have cherished us, how you nourish us. Lord, we are undeserving of your, of your faithfulness, of your love, um, but we thank you that you have made us beautiful. We're not beautiful because uh, we have adorned ourselves with our own righteousness, but because you have given us yours and made us holy and pure. Father, as we come to worship you, we pray that you would help us to come before you as uh, as a church, as we come to submit to you, to your word, to listen to you, uh, to love you, to offer you uh, the reverence that, is, uh, that you deserve. Father, please work in our hearts. Please transform us. Please uh, fill us with your spirit, your word, your blessings, your gifts. And may it be for your glory, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.